0: Amen. Thank you, band. Friends, it's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. As you're doing that, I want to thank Dr. Allen for the privilege of preaching in chapel. If you heard his recent chapel message, you know that we don't talk as much as I'd like. If you remember the the story of the car ride... Uh, but we want to do a little less chatting today, and a little more preaching, and so grateful for the opportunity to do that. In all seriousness, it's a rich blessing to share God's Word anytime, but when you get to do it amid, amongst so many friends, uh, it's a special privilege, and so we're looking forward to doing that. This morning, my topic is this, missional leadership for the church. Missional leadership for the church, reclaiming and recommitting to God's call to take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. So we have much to do today, so let's begin. So we're going to begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. God's Word said, The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And he says, Now it happened in the months of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there and the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You pray with me. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word this morning. Father, as I contemplate the task of preaching, it's amazing to think that that not only have you saved us, you invite us to listen to you. And not only have you invited us to listen to you, you invite us to proclaim your word. And so this morning, I pray that we would honor that by listening, and even more than that, seeking to live these things out today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for those of you that know me, you know that I love leadership. I I teach leadership. I I lead something called the Leadership Project. I, I listen to leadership podcasts. I love reading biographies of ordinary individuals who have accomplished extraordinary things. But even more than that, I love discipling emerging leaders, That's deep in my bones. I I enjoy helping students identify and embrace their God-given gifts. I love walking alongside individuals as fear gives way to faith and radical obedience to Christ. Ultimately, I love helping Christian leaders lead. That's one of the reasons I'm here at Midwestern. I I want to see people take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. But these, you should note, are not casual interests. I do have a casual interest in leadership, but it's it's much deeper than that. It's a conviction, listen to this, that leadership is uniquely a Christian responsibility that is rooted in the mission of God and His people. If you're writing, write that down. Let me say it again, that leadership is uniquely a Christian responsibility rooted in the mission of God and of His people. As Crawford so helpfully pointed out last week, Scripture is full of movement. That's such a helpful word when we think about Scripture. Movement and mission. Throughout both the Old and New Testaments, we observe God on a mission to make Himself known. Now, obviously, all of creation knows God, but all of creation does not know God as Savior and Lord. So His mission is not only to make Himself known, but to make himself known as Lord. And so he pursues this. We see God graciously reminding us of that. He's moving towards us through creation, through covenants, and ultimately we see the New Testament through Christ. In Christ himself, he has made himself known. But to read Scripture is also to see God inviting us and even commanding us to participate in this mission. Made in His image, God's people are called to be like God, to move with God, to take the grace and aroma of Christ to a world who desperately needs us. Brothers and sisters, we are called the sent ones. Jesus said, so as the Father has sent me, I I send you. And we're called to follow Jesus as He marches towards the darkness with the hope of the gospel. You may say that we're called to live lives as missional leaders. We're called to live lives as missional leaders. As the name implies, missional leadership is nothing less than God's people on God's mission for God's glory alone. God's people on God's mission for God's glory alone. Missional leadership is what happens when feet of faith follow God on his mission to make himself known as Lord over all creation. We're here at a place where we think about doctrine a lot. Missional leadership is what happens when doctrinal Commitments become a steeled determination to make a difference, right? We should note, we should be careful about this and note that unlike other forms of leadership throughout Scripture, missional leadership is not limited by gifting. It's not limited by marital status, calling, or gender. Rather, missional leadership acts as the basis and the bedrock for all other forms of biblical leadership. When we pastor, we're called to lead, but that emerges out of this overarching call to take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. When we're called to lead our family, men, we're called to take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others in a unique expression, right? So we're, we're, we see this calling, and so we should know that missional leadership, therefore, is not reserved for the bold and gifted, but for the broken and willing, Missional leadership is not the privilege of the few, but the responsibility of all Christians. Anyone that is in this room that calls Jesus Lord is called to lead. Make no mistake. Regardless of what your Enneagram number tells you or your disk profile tells you, you are called to lead. Missional leadership is the responsibility of male and female, young and old, brave and timid, charismatic and uncharismatic, introverted and Extroverted, platformed, and platformless. All of God's children are called to take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. But as soon as we embrace this reality, we are confronted with another. And that is this that there is a leadership crisis in the church. I've had the privilege over the last 10 years to disciple leaders, to help teach leaders. I've had the privilege just over the last four or five years to teach leadership here. And I can tell you as I do, there's a crisis when it comes to how we think about leadership. Now, let me tell you, we do a really good job when we think about biblical um, elders right? That's very clear in Scripture. We do a good job when we think about husbands leading their wives. We do even a good job when we think about the spiritual gift of leadership. But when it comes to this movement and mission of Scripture where all of God's children are called to take initiative and to go, we're not that clear on that. And so I want to seek to embrace that. And I would tell you, I think the crisis can be contributed to at least one or two things. First, the church suffers from a lack of clarity around Christian leadership, around what Christian leadership is and what it is not. And this, of course, is understandable. We do this in response to problematic secular leadership theories, to rampant pragmatism in the church, and to seemingly endless allegations of abuse from Christian leadership gurus. We're understandably cautious and we ask questions like, is leadership even biblical? Is leadership pragmatic? Is leadership prideful? After all, doesn't God call us to a life of anonymous service and suffering? Ask yourself that question. When I think about leadership, when somebody hands me a leadership book, what's running through my mind? And often these are the questions and I would say you're wise to ask those questions, but I say we should push through that. But in our daily life and ministry, we can sense that leadership is incredibly important. We can see that our homes, our friendships, our churches and communities are carried forward through faithful and focused leadership, and yet our moral and theological reservations leave us paralyzed. So we're suspended between these two convictions. One is that we got to be cautious about leadership, and we're, we're right in that. That is a good response but we also look around us and go, and it seems that the Lord is using leadership, right? I'm convinced that until we recover a biblical view of leadership, until we can winsomely, listen to this, articulate what biblical leadership is as winsomely as we can say what it is not, we run the risk of throwing God's good gift of leadership out with the bathwater of pragmatism. So one is a lack of clarity, but two, the second is a lack of courage, a lack of courage. I'm going to camp out here for a second. Many of us know exactly what leadership demands of us, and that's exactly why we don't do it. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that the natural response to missional leadership is fear. That's why Jesus closes. If you ever think about the Great Commission, we read Matthew 28, 18 and other similar passages, and we think about going, and we should think about going, but often we forget the ending of that passage. And it tells us something of the task of mission and of leadership, of what is required of us. Jesus closes the Great Commission with a promise to go with us. It's as he knows and as he is aware that they're locked in an upper room, afraid of what's on the other side of the door. And he's inviting them to unlock the door and to go out into the same society, the same culture, the same people that just crucified him. So he knows they're afraid. And what does he say in response? He says, That I will be with you even to the end of the age. He knows our frame. And isn't that a comfort to you that Jesus knows who you are? He knows our frame. And with wounds in his hands and his feet, he knows exactly what this mission will require. Think about your own leadership. You took initiative and exposed yourself to meaningful risks for the glory of God and the good of others. Perhaps you finally gathered the courage to share the gospel with your neighbor. Or fusion students, maybe you moved to Kansas City to join a team to go across the pond to serve in some unreached people group. Or maybe you simply gathered the courage to step towards your spouse in repentance. In every case, you took initiative for the glory of of God and the good of others. And that queasy feeling, the sweaty palms, the queasy feeling you felt as you stepped towards God and mission and with God and mission is called fear. It's called fear. And without courage rooted in God himself, we run the risk of doing what Andy Crouch calls simulated risk. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is profound for our moment and for our students. Listen to this. He says, When it comes to leadership, the real temptation for most of us is not complete disengagement. We're too proud to be disengaged, right? But the real temptation is activities that simulate real leadership, that simulate mission, that simulate risk and vulnerability without actually requiring much from us, so it doesn't cost us, or transforming, as God designs, much in us. Wow. My friends, when it comes to leadership, I'm afraid that our ambitions, in the words of C.S. Lewis, are not too strong, but they're too weak. We have settled for a small gospel and must recover the grandeur of what it means to live a life of missional leadership. So, in light of this and the time we have left, we're going to jump in Nehemiah, and I want to ask two questions. Two questions. First, What does missional leadership look like? If we buy the fact that we ought to take leadership back off the shelf and and utilize this framework in Christendom, what, what would that look like? How do I know when I lead that I'm not leading from vain ambition and sin, but this is uniquely Christian? We're going to ask that question. And secondly, where does godly courage come from? If it's true that leadership Puts us in a position when we are wildly afraid and terrified. Where do we find courage? So let's jump in. I want to see four insights from the life and leadership of Nehemiah. First, notice that godly leaders have godly burdens. Godly leaders have godly burdens. There's a crisis, we should note, at background here in Jerusalem. The year is 425 B.C., and Babylonians and ultimately the Persians have overrun Jerusalem. And now the people are exiled. They're they're, they're cast throughout the countryside, but they're slowly returning to Jerusalem. But they're in great trouble and shame. There are no walls. The temple is in peril and God's people are vulnerable and in great need. And notice that God, in his kindness, helps Nehemiah see this. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, He asked his brothers. His brothers didn't walk in and tell him. He's, he's actively asking about this, about the wel- welfare of God's people. This is reminiscent of Jeremiah fifteen five, which says, Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare. And once he sees it, he doesn't look away. Like the good Samaritan, Nehemiah was not cold and disinterested, but actively concerned. But also know that Nehemiah was burdened, so, so his, his sight became a burden for the people and the things of God. In chapter 1, verses 4, he says, I wept and mourned for days. Not I don't know about you, as a, as a guy and, and I'm not afraid to cry, but at the same time, I've had trouble with that over the years. That So really, he heard about this story over there, and he wept and cried for days. So so what are we to make of this? Is Nehemiah just an emotional guy? And I don't think that's the case. Nehemiah was a a happy man. We see in chapter 2, verse 1, the king says, He has never been sad before the king. So this is not a, a mopey millennial. This is a happy guy. I'm millennial too, by the way, by one year, but I'm there with you. So he's not a mopey millennial. But notice that Nehemiah was also a strong man. He stood before kings. He rode horses. He built walls with one hand and held a sword in the other. And in chapter 13, verses 25, listen to this. He rebukes wayward Jews by cursing them, beating some of them, and pulling out their hair. You don't want Nehemiah as your pastor. Okay, this is bad news. So what is God inviting us to see here? I think he wants to see that Nehemiah has eyes to see the things of God. But more than that, in prayer, he is inviting God to burden him for the things of God. What is God inviting you to see? God has put you in a place. He's given you particular gifts in a particular time, in a particular moment. What is God inviting you to see? Number two, godly leaders hope in God. So as we're evaluating our leadership, whether or not this is Christian, whether or not this is virtuous, whether or not God would be proud of our leadership, we want to know, are we burdened about the right things? And then where are we placing our hope? Chapter 1, verse 4 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is another strange set of circumstances. Man, we, we live in a world that if something goes wrong, we tweet, we post, we blog, we riot, we take action. And the irony here is I'm encouraging us to take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others, but in a strange way, in a supernatural way. What we see here is that Nehemiah sat down. But more than that, Nehemiah hopes In God, and this is seen in his prayer. He doesn't just sit down, he sits down to engage the Lord in prayer. Nehemiah knows that the first action he needs to take is to pray. He, he prays constantly. I, I searched a few nights ago prayer in the book of Nehemiah, and I literally couldn't work through it all. Nehemiah is constantly praying. He's praying in chapter 1, this, this prolonged prayer. When, when the king notices that he's afraid, he, he tosses up a prayer. Uh, when he's worried about people encroaching on the wall, he prays. He is constantly praying. But notice This, when we think about Nehemiah and his hope, in addition to his prayers, and I want to land here for a second, this is powerful when it comes to leadership. Nehemiah invites people to trust in God, not in Nehemiah. Look in chapter 2, verses 17. Chapter 2, verses 17, he said, Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Come, let us build. So he's inv- this, this is, if we were in a leadership classroom, we would look at this and go, this is the moment where leadership happened. He's inviting people to come with him, to, to move from A to B and to do something, to take a risk. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. But listen to this, verse 18. And I told them not of my platform. Not even of my competency, not even of my God-given gifts or what's happened to me or how all the churches I've led have grown and been successful and how I have a happy home. And obviously, we see in the New Testament, those things are are relevant. But, But Nehemiah races to who God is, right? And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. When Nehemiah wanted to convince people to follow him, he didn't lean on his success or his platform or charisma or his jokes or his gifts. No, he anchored his vision in the people of God. Or he anchored his vision in his people and God. Listen, you may be the reason that someone came to your church, but you should not be the reason that people stay there. Let me say that again. You may be the reason that people came to your church. Maybe you invited them to church. Maybe they came to hear one of your sermons. But if you're a faithful pastor, you ought to quickly transfer that trust from you to God himself. Because one day, every one of us in this room, whether we're leading our families, our homes, and our community, and our churches, we will fade into a distant memory, but God will not. And so when that happens, we want people to be left with something sturdy. Sturdy. Brothers, you and I on our best day are not sturdy. We, we are waffling to and fro, and Nehemiah knows that. He knows his days are limited. He knows who he is, and he knows who God is. So he invites people to anchor their courage and their confidence in him. Number three. Godly leaders take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. We should note that that prayer was Nehemiah's first step, but it wasn't his last step. And this is where so many Christians get this wrong. Because of our concerns about leadership, because of our concerns about pragmatism, because of our our accurate suspicions about our sin and fallenness, oftentimes we're, we're suspended and paralyzed by that. But notice that Nehemiah didn't have to pray too long to know that he should go serve God's people. And so he took initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. He prayed big prayers. He went to the king with bold plans. Despite being terrified, he embarked on a great and dangerous journey to Jerusalem. And once there, he investigated the situation and enlisted help. Man, Nehemiah was a man of action. And he did this Uh, You know, when you think about leadership and you define leadership, there's two schools. There's leadership in the school of influence, but there's leadership in the school of initiative. And this was the school of Nehemiah. But to make it Christian, initiative for initiative's sake is not helpful. Leadership for for leadership's sake is not helpful. Action for action's sake is not helpful. But it's benevolent, God-driven, God-anchored leadership. Nehemiah wasn't burdened for himself. Nehemiah was motivated by the glory of God and the good of God his people. Have you thought about the fact that Nehemiah had nothing to gain by heading to Jerusalem and probably everything to lose? He had a cushy job. He had a really cushy job. That's a massive job that he had. There wasn't air conditioning back there, but whatever they had, he had it. And he had it good. And yet he leaves this. Why? He puts everything, everything on the line to go. And we see that ultimately Nehemiah's burden was not for the wall, but for worship. And as the book closes, we find God's people doing just that. So godly leaders have godly burdens, number one. Godly leaders hope in God. And godly leaders take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. And finally, godly leaders have godly courage. Godly leaders have godly courage. And I don't know about you, but when I read the story of Nehemiah and just about anybody else in Scripture that's enshrined in Hebrews 11, I find courage in the fact that they're like us in so many ways. They're terrified. Hebrews 11 is not a story of people that looked in a mirror in the morning and dug deep and looked for something on the inside. Nehemiah is a story, and Hebrews 11 are stories of people that looked outside of themselves. They looked away. They looked looked to Jesus. So Nehemiah, like us, he's a normal man. And like us, he struggles with fear. Listen to this. So he's afraid before the king. He asks letters to secure passage to Jerusalem. He inspects the wall under the cloak of darkness. It's not very bold. He doesn't tell people what he's up to. So he's, he's very cagey. He builds a wall with one hand and holds a sword with another. Nehemiah is not in the Tony Robbins school of leadership. He's not looking for courage by looking in the mirror and saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. He's very well aware that he cannot do it. And there we find his strength. Nehemiah found courage in the fact that God had sent him to Jerusalem. Look in chapter 2, verse 12. He says that God had put this very task on his heart. It's amazing to me, when, I, when you, you read the stories of Nehemiah, and, and in particular, you read his prayers, notice that unlike a lot of people in the Old Testament, God does not seem to answer back. There's not this elaborate prayer, and then God says. It's an elaborate prayer, and then Nehemiah acts. But he was convinced that God had put it on his heart. And when he was sad and scared before the king, Nehemiah remembered that he was doing the work of the one who Daniel 2.21 says, changes times and seasons and removes kings and sets up kings. But listen, even more than that, Nehemiah found courage in the fact that God was with him. God was with him. Listen, listen to the words of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 2.8, he says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. I'm just like, he cannot cough without reflecting on the the reality and the glory of the fact that God is with him. Nehemiah 2.18, and I told them not of my success, but of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Nehemiah 2.20, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Nehemiah 4.15, God has frustrated the hand of our enemy. Nehemiah 4.20, God will fight for us. Like Joshua hundreds of years earlier, Nehemiah's strength and courage was rooted in the reality that God sent him and God was with him. His courage was rooted in the reality that God sent him and that God was with him. Brothers and sisters, those of us that have been adopted into the family of God, those of us that not only have the law in our hands, but we have it in our heart, those of us that have been made friends of God, how much more should we who are in Christ be sure of the task that is before us and the God who sends us? Like Nehemiah, God himself saw our need and sent his only begotten son to carry the awful burden of our sin all the way to the cross so that you and I who are found in him may forever be confident in the love and sovereign care of our risen Savior. Brothers and sisters, this gospel is the focus and fuel of missional leadership. This gospel, your gospel, the truth, that you proclaim, that we believe is the fuel and focus and message of missional leadership. Yes, God is calling you to follow him deep into the wild and restless world around us, but we're not going there long. God has gone before us and God promises to go with us. He will surely give us everything we need. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us your son, and you have commissioned us with the spirit. You've gone before us, and you've promised to go with us. And so we ask that you would give us courage, Father, not courage in our gifts and our performance, not courage in our success, not courage in our name, but in your name alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.